0: Okay, so we are going to get started here uh, with our our presentation. Uh, Just a couple of practical things uh, before I introduce our our speaker. Uh, If you are new here and you've never been here before, uh, there are restrooms up this door here, straight by the water fountains to the left. And there's also restrooms out this door to the left as well. Okay. And then also, as you have already discovered perhaps, uh, there's refreshments, there's cookies, coffee, water. If you'd like that, feel free to get up anytime during the talk uh, to refresh yourselves. And uh, let's see, anything else? I think that's it. Oh, make sure you do have a copy of the handout. If you don't have one, they're on the table back there. Uh, Dr. Petrie is going to refer to this uh, throughout his presentation tonight. And now it's my privilege to, uh, to introduce our guest, uh, Dr. Brant Petrie. I'm going to use this advertisement here. Uh, in case you didn't see it, uh, we advertised in the Catholic spirit and in the neighboring parishes. So Dr. Petrie is Distinguished Research Professor of Scripture at the Augustine Institute, a graduate school of theology. He earned his Ph.D. in theology from the University of Notre Dame, where he specialized in the study of the New Testament and ancient Judaism. He is the author of the best-selling books, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. I believe that was one of your first books and one of my favorites as well. Maybe some of you have read that. He also wrote The Case for Jesus and Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary. So we are very blessed to have him here with us this evening. He's in the process of writing another book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Mass. And we are going to get a kind of a preview of the content of that book. It is my joy to introduce to you Dr. Bram Petrie.
1: Thank you, Father, very much. Can everyone hear me Okay. I'll get louder as I get more excited. So, uh, well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm I'm really excited to be with you tonight, as Father said, to share some fresh research that I've been doing, uh, continuing along the lines of looking at the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith. But I want to focus my emphasis tonight, not so much on the real presence of the Eucharist, which is what I did in that earlier book, um, but on the, the liturgy as the context in which we Worship Christ who is present to us in the Holy Eucharist. So before I begin, just to, just to check, I'm curious, um, how many of you might have read the book Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist? Anybody familiar with it? Okay, so we have a few people familiar with it. Okay, great. So I'm going to build on that, but I'm going to go beyond it tonight, all right? And you'll definitely want to have the handout, as Father mentioned, because I like texts. I like biblical passages, and there are a lot of them that I want to share with you tonight. So if you're like me and you're visual and you want to follow along without getting too lost, uh, keep your eyes on the handout and it will help. And it's also something you can take out after the presentation and maybe share with someone else or you can pray with it um, and continue your own studies of the Holy Scriptures. So um, I see people coming in. Come on in uh, and be sure to grab a handout. And uh, let's begin just with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful, rainy night. Thank you for the opportunity to come together in this church. We ask that as members of the body of our Lord, his church, that you would send the Holy Spirit upon us tonight to open our minds and to open our eyes and our hearts to everything you want to show us in the Scriptures about the mystery of the Mass, about the mystery of the worship that we offer to you through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And so we pray to you as we always do with the words that he himself gave to us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. John Paul II. And St. Thomas Aquinas. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Mass. As I mentioned earlier, in my first book, Uh, the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, what I examined was the question of why do Catholics believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist? Why do we believe that the Eucharist really is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ? And not just why do Catholics believe that, but why did the first Jewish Christians, like St. Paul, who was a Pharisee, believe, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that the cup of blessing we bless is a communion in in the blood of Christ. Or the bread which we break really is a communion in the body of Christ. How did Paul go from being a Pharisee, who would have thought that the idea of drinking blood was an abomination, to a Christian apostle arguing that, of course, the consecrated wine is, in fact, the blood of Christ? So what I argued in that book was that the way to understand early Christian beliefs like those of St. Paul, as well as the Catholic beliefs that we've inherited from the apostles was to try to see the Eucharist through ancient Jewish eyes, to understand that the first Christians believed that the Eucharist was really Jesus in body and blood because they saw it as the fulfillment of scripture. They saw the Eucharist in three ways. Number one, as a new Passover, right? you had to actually eat the flesh of the lamb. Number two, as new manna from heaven, as new miraculous bread, not ordinary earthly bread from heaven. And then number three, as the new bread of the presence, this mysterious bread that was kept in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So that was the basic argument of that book. Tonight, I want to do the same approach, but I want to back up from the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and the sacrament itself and ask about the Mass, about the liturgy with which the Eucharist comes to be in our presence through the words, the signs, the actions, and the sacred consecration of the host and chalice by the priest. And so I'm basically asking tonight, why do Catholics do what we do when we come to Mass? Why do we say what we say in Mass? Um, And this is something that, if you're like me, you're a cradle Catholic, it's, it's a very important point. Many of us know what to do in Mass, right? When to stand, when to sit, when to kneel, what to say, right? But we don't necessarily know why we do it. We just do it because... Well, that's what we've we've always done. Or if you're a convert, you come into the church, that's what you do because that's what everyone else does. But tonight, I want to look at the reasons behind that. I want to look at the rationale for some of the things we say and do in the Mass. And what I want to argue is, if you really want to understand the liturgy of the church, you also need to try to look at it through ancient Jewish eyes. You need to understand that the Mass properly understood is not just a worship service a kind of generic church service but rather the mass is the fulfillment of three things that we're going to look at tonight number 1 it's the fulfillment of the worship that took place in the Jewish temple number 2 it's the fulfillment of the worship that took place in the Jewish synagogue which is not the same as the temple and then number 3 That the Eucharist is not just a meal, but it is also the fulfillment of ancient Jewish sacrifice. And that if you can understand that in the Mass, we're coming to the new temple, the new synagogue, to celebrate the new sacrifice of Christ, all of a sudden, a lot of the strange things that we see and say and do at Mass will will begin to make sense. All right? So that's the basic idea for the talk tonight. And one, I want to begin by making this uh, one last point. In this attempt to explain the Mass, to understand the words, the actions, the rites, and the rituals of the liturgy, the idea of going back to the Jewish roots is not just like my thing. As You know, like Dr. Petrie, here he goes again with one more Jewish roots book. Although, they do seem to sell well, so why stop, right? Um, <laughs> But in the Catechism of the Catholic Church itself, in the section on the liturgy, paragraph 1096, if you look at your handout there, it has a little section on Jewish and Christian liturgy, and this is what the Catechism says, and I'm quoting here, a better knowledge, so it says Jewish liturgy and Christian liturgy, a better knowledge of the Jewish people's faith and religious life as professed and lived even now can help our better understanding of certain aspects of Christian liturgy, right? So liturgy is an ancient Greek word for worship, what we do in communal worship. So the catechism itself says if you want to understand Catholic worship, Christian liturgy better, where do you need to look? You need to look at the Jewish liturgy from which it emerged and from which it grew. Alright? So that's what I'm going to do tonight. We're going to look at those three topics. So, we'll begin with a few questions. Um... Maybe you've asked these things yourself, uh, you've, and if you have any family or friends who are not from the Catholic tradition, they've certainly probably asked you this. Like, my wife grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition, and once she started coming to Mass with me, she asked me questions about the sanctuary and about some of the things we did, questions such as, you know, why is the sanctuary decorated in the way that it is? Why is there this altar in the synod? Why all the candles at every single Mass? What's that golden box in the back, in the center? Would you call it the tabernacle, right? Why is that there? What's the reason for having that? And why do your priests wear these strange garments, right? With all these images on it? What's, What's up with the vestments? Like in her tradition, she grew up where preachers would wear a suit and tie. But when she came to my church, the priest is wearing these very beautiful, very elaborate, but also somewhat strange vestments. What's that all about? And why, as Catholics, when we come together, do we do things like chant the psalms together, the responsorial psalm, or sing this holy, 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 and every time we sing it, right after we we kneel down, right? What are they, what's the reason for all these strange things you do in the Mass? Now, at the time, I, I couldn't answer her because I think I was 15 when we started dating. No, I was 14 when we started dating. She was 15, older woman, you know. Um <laughs> And so I didn't really know. I was just like, this is what we do. I don't know why. But as I began to study the scriptures, and especially as I began to read the Old Testament, I started to see connections between what the Jews did in the Old Testament and what we did as Catholics in the Mass. And so my answer to all of those questions would be the reason we do those things is because the Mass is not just any old worship service, but rather the Mass is the fulfillment of the worship in the Jewish Temple. So let's begin by looking at that and understanding the mass through the lens of the new temple. All right, in order to see this clearly, we have to go back not just to the temple, but to the ancient Jewish sanctuary that preceded the temple known as the Tabernacle of Moses. So you'll probably recall from the book of Exodus, after the Israelites get out of Egypt, they cross through the waters of the Red Sea, they go to Mount Sinai, and it's at Mount Sinai that they receive the Decalogue. They receive the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone. That's in Exodus 19 and 20. And Uh, What most people aren't as familiar with, uh, because they don't usually depict this very well or a very detailed way in the movies, is that as soon as Israel gets the law in Exodus 19 and 20, the very next thing God tells them is how he wants to be worshipped. He begins to give them instructions about liturgy. He gives them very detailed instructions about how he's to be worshipped in the detailed instructions on how to build the sanctuary known as the Tabernacle, a kind of portable temple that the Israelites would bring with them through the desert as they journeyed on their way to the Promised Land. Now, one of the reasons many people aren't as familiar with these texts that I'm about to read is because this is the part of the book of Exodus that begins to seem like you're reading an Ikea manual, right, for putting together something, because it's so detailed. It's very dry, it's very boring, and most people, this is where they fall off. If if you've ever done this, maybe you did this. This year, I'm going to read the whole Bible, right? Right. And you start in Genesis, and it's, wow, it's really interesting. You creation and Abraham. They got some racy stories in the book of Genesis. This is a little more interesting than I anticipated. Then you get to Exodus, and there's fire and lightning and blood and frogs. And wow, it's really exciting. Then you hit Exodus 24 and 25, and it starts with the description of the tabernacle. And it you're like, wait, what is this? I'm done. And you put the book down. Okay, I see some heads nod. Everybody, okay, I know. I've been there and done this. Okay, so... But those instructions actually show how important liturgy is to God. He's going to tell Israel exactly how his sanctuary is going to be constructed and how it's going to be decorated. So let's look at what the ancient tabernacle looked like. So the first quote here just describes the tabernacle itself. God says these words, and I quote, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. According to all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. Exodus 25. So notice here, the word sanctuary that we still use to this day for the church, right? This holy place means in Hebrew, uh, it's a mikdash, a place that is holy or set apart. It comes from the Hebrew word for holy, kodesh, right? Or kadosh, You'll see it in both ways. It means holy place. And in the Latin translation of the Bible, it is sanctuarium. So that's where we get the word from. So the very word we'll use for the sanctuary in the church comes from the tabernacle. So that should be your first clue as to help us understand why we set it up the way we do. Second point there, notice that they don't just build the tabernacle according to their own whims or preferences, but God says, I'm going to show you the pattern, I'm going to give you the blueprints for the tabernacle on the mountain. So if you remember in the book of Exodus, the elders go up to the top of the mountain and they have a revelation of heaven. They see the heavenly realm and it's that vision of heaven that becomes the blueprint for worship on earth. Okay? So the sanctuary, this is important, isn't just any place It's a holy place because the tabernacle on earth is a visible representation of the tabernacle in heaven, in the heavenly realm. First point. Well, When you would go into the temple or tabernacle, what do you see? Well, one of the first things you're going to see is an altar. Look at your next quote. God tells them, you shall make the altar of acacia wood. Five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. A cubit, by the way, is about uh, the length from your elbow to your tip of your to your your fingers. It's about a foot and a half in in length. It says you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it has been shown you where on the mountain. So God gives them the type. So shall it be made. So that altar then is going to be notice. It's square, but it's also covered in sacred, precious metal, bronze. And that's going to be the place where the animals are sacrificed to the Lord. So anytime you see an altar, you're in a sanctuary. You're in the tabernacle. Another clue that you would be in the tabernacle, another thing you would see in the tabernacle are candles. Right. In fact, God gives them a command to make a special lampstand known as the menorah, which would have seven candles atop it. Here's the description from the Old Testament. Quote, You shall make a lampstand, in Hebrew, menorah, of pure gold. Ooh, and even more precious metal. You shall make the seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light inside the sanctuary. See that you make them according to What? a pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So notice, each one of these pieces of sacred furniture is a representation of a heavenly reality. The earthly tabernacles, a representation of the heavenly one. The earthly altar is a representation of a heavenly altar. And the earthly menorah is a representation of the heavenly candelabra, Another thing you would see in the temple or in the tabernacle of Moses is this special table for very special bread. It should sound familiar, Catholics, right? It's called the bread called the bread of the presence. This is what it says in Exodus 25, quote, You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, one cubit wide, a cubit and a half high, and overlay it once again with gold. God likes his gold. Note that, okay? <laughs> He's not opposed to using gold to make the sanctuary beautiful. Why? Because in ancient Israel, as well as in other ancient religions, gold was a symbol of divinity, of heaven. So if you want to signal to someone that they're entering into the heavenly realm, you decorate it with gold. So it says, you shall make flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me always. All right, pause here. I've got a whole talk, the Jewish roots of the Eucharist in in that book, where I go into the bread of the presence in a lot of detail. For our purposes tonight, I just want you to notice a couple things. First, this sacred bread, this holy bread, wasn't just bread. Notice it says there are flagons for drink offerings. In other words, along with the bread of the presence was also wine. And not just any kind of wine. If it's wine to be poured out for our libations, it's sacrificial wine. If you've ever studied the ancient religions of Greece or Rome, you'll know that this was part of ancient sacrifice, not just in Israel, but in other religions, where if you wanted to make an offering to God, you could pour out water or wine as a libation to the God. Israelites did the same thing, but they did it with bread and wine. Right. So, notice this important. In the tabernacle, there are two kinds of sacrifice. On the bronze altar, you have bloody sacrifice—the sacrifice of bulls, or sheep, or goat. Right? Sheep. Sorry, sheeps, Plural. I'm tired. I've been. I've, this is my fourth lecture this week. So give me. Give me a second. Uh, sheeps, uh, They're deers out in the wood. Anyway. Um, that's a bloody sacrifice. But there's also a second category of unbloody sacrifice. And guess what unbloody sacrifice consisted of? Bread and wine. We'll come back to that in the, in, the, in the last section of sacrifice. Finally, when you'd enter into the temple, in the most holy part of the temple, there was this golden box known as the Ark of the covenant, right? And this is the most familiar part of the tabernacle of Moses, thanks to Indiana Jones and uh, Harrison Ford and the famous films that have been made. Um, But it's a very significant one precisely because it was the center of the tabernacle. And this is what God says about it, quote, they shall make an ark of acacia wood, You shall overlay it with pure gold. You shall make two cherubim of gold, and the cherubim shall spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat. That's the cover with their wings. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the covenant that I shall give you. Okay, don't turn the page just yet. Hold on. A couple things. Notice that the ark is made of acacia wood. Acacia wood is a very special wood because it's actually incorruptible it doesn't decay it doesn't rot right so it's the perfect wood if you want to make something that is permanent and sacred and holy right you're not going to make this out of uh, like cedar for example one time i used cedar for not no no it wasn't cedar for it was pine i used pine for a fence and within like a year especially in louisiana it was just already beginning to, ter- to deteriorate because it was very corruptible it rotted quickly acacia wood doesn't rot right? It, it, it's incorruptible. It's also overlaid with pure gold. And on top of the ark, notice you have two cherubim. Now, in ancient Israel, we, we might think of cherubim as like naked babies with wings, okay? But that's, that's not what cherubim are in the Old Testament. The cherubim are the angels. They're actually very majestic, very powerful. And here we have two statues of angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because the ark, like the other sacred pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, are meant to, is meant to tell you that you're entering into heaven. Right? So just as the cherubim and seraphim surround the throne of God in the heavenly sanctuary, so on earth it's fitting that you have statues of golden cherubim to tell you you're not on earth anymore if you're in the Holy of Holies. You are entering into heaven. Right? This is particularly important for us as Catholics. Because many times our non-Catholic friends or family might say, why do you Catholics have statues in your sanctuaries? Statue of of, of the Blessed Virgin or St. Joseph or Jesus or the angels, right? Doesn't God command to make no graven image? And the answer is, yes, he does. In fact, he does it in Exodus chapter 20. But clearly he doesn't mean there can't be any images at all because in chapter 25 he's telling them to make golden images of angels, right? So there must be, unless he's forgotten his own commandment within four chapters, which seems unlikely because he's omniscient, uh, there has to be a different interpretation of graven images. And the graven images obviously are images of false gods. It's a commandment against idolatry, not against iconography. See the difference? This is important. So already in ancient Israel, there are statues of angels, and the angels are meant to tell you that you are entering into the heavenly sanctuary. And in that golden ark with the angels atop it, you're going to put the tablets of the covenant, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Okay, turn the page now. All right, on your handout, I, I put a little chart there just to help you. You might be able to look at this later. Uh, it's a little <laughs> diagram of the uh, tabernacle, although you probably can't see it clearly if you're my age. If you're over 40, this is useless. But for you young folks who are here tonight, this might be helpful. Um, it's just a little chart showing you what where these pieces of furniture were in the tabernacle. And um, you might note that the tabernacle, you would always enter it from the east. It was oriented with the opening toward the east the first thing you would see there was the bronze altar of sacrifice that square the next thing was the bronze laver for washing we'll come back to that in just a moment and then if you went into the inner sanctum when you would enter it on your left at the bottom that would be the golden menorah on your right the golden table the bread of the presence and then in the middle of the two was a little golden altar another altar but this was an altar of incense Remember when St. Zechariah goes into the temple and he has his vision to find out that he's going to be the father of John the Baptist? And he was offering the incense. That's where he would have been. He saw the angel at the side of that golden altar of incense. We'll come back to incense in just a moment as well. And then finally, once you entered the innermost sanctum, the Holy of Holies, that's where the golden box of the Ark of the Covenant was kept, which by the way, don't open it unless you want your face to melt off like that (laughs) German guy in the movie. All right. So this not anybody, just anybody can open the Ark of the Covenant. And it wasn't just that. People don't realize this. In the the, uh, books of Samuel and, and, and Kings, there's a story of uh, the Philistines got a hold of the Ark, and they they opened it too and looked inside it, and God sent a plague of hemorrhoids <laughs> among them. So uh, I don't know what's worse, having your face melted off or a hemorrhoid plague, but either way, looking inside the Ark without permission is a bad idea, okay, so just, you know, FYI, like a public service message there. Don't look inside the ark. Anyway, uh, okay, so that's the inner sanctuary, but every single piece of furniture is, again, meant to reflect the heavenly reality, and then another aspect of the temple that was significant uh, was the vestments of the priests. We sometimes forget that priestly vestments are not something that was invented in the Middle Ages. They go back to Judaism, too. In fact, all the way to Exodus 28. And there, God says this about the vestments. Listen to this, quote, "...bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with them from among the sons of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, And you shall make holy garments for them, for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty." Oh, wow. These are the garments they shall make. A breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a checkered tunic, a turban. And the Greek word for turban there is actually mitre. M-I-T-R-E. Like a bishop wears a mitre. This is where we get that from. And a sash. When they make these sacred vestments for the brother, his, your brother Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests, they shall use gold, blue, purple... And crimson yarns and fine linen. No polyester, all right. Fine linen, right? Okay. Well, it's got to be breathe. It's got to be cool because they're going to be burning animals at the altar of sacrifice, and the linen breathes, right? So, notice though, what's the main point about the vestments? These aren't just any kind of garments. What kind of garments are there? They're holy. That means they're sacred. They're set apart. They're not like ordinary dress, right? A Jewish priest isn't going to wear a three-piece suit into the tabernacle. He's going to wear a garment that's sacred and notice it's designed, what? Two things, for glory and for beauty. It's important. Beauty in worship is a very important thing. The Lord wanted his tabernacle to look like heaven on earth and heaven is beautiful. So it's fitting that the priest's vestments also be beautiful, that they give glory and honor to God and show those who see the priest serving in the temple, we're not not in Kansas anymore, right? We're not on earth. We've actually, in a mystical, liturgical way, entered into heaven. Now, that's all from the tabernacle of Moses. If you know the story of the Old Testament, you'll know that eventually, once they make it to the promised land, the tabernacle, which was a portable temple, is brought by David to Jerusalem. And David's dream is to build a permanent temple for the house of the Lord. Unfortunately, David has too much blood on his hands. And God tells him, you're not fit to build the temple. But your son, Solomon, he will build a temple for me. And then the tabernacle is going to go literally inside the temple. In a sense, it's going to be subsumed into the temple so that the temple becomes nothing more than a permanent tabernacle, right? So when that happens, one of the things that David does that's different than the tabernacle of Moses is that when it comes to preparing for the temple, David adds something special to worship. David adds sacred Music. So the liturgy of the tabernacle, if you're, if you're a Jew and you're going into Moses' tabernacle, it's just blood sacrifice, unbloody sacrifice, carried out in total silence. There's no song. But David, recall, is one of the principal author of many of the Psalms in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms. And David sets up liturgical singers to not only worship God with the with the blood of animals or the bread and wine of the bread of the presence, but with the sacrifice of lips of praise coming forth from the lips of God's people. So if you look here, uh, the Psalms in the temple, 1 Chronicles chapter 6 says this, These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord, and after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. 1 Chronicles 6, and of course, what psalms would they have sung? What songs, excuse me, What they have sung? It wouldn't have been, um, you know, This Little Light of Mine or some hymn or something you might be familiar with, you know, Amazing Grace. The songs they sang were the psalms from the book of Psalms right those 150 sacred hymns that are attributed either to David or some of them in the men that David commissions Asaph is one of them right Ethan the Ezrahite is another man to whom several of the psalms are attributed and there's even a couple attributed to Solomon or Moses they're or at least associated with those figures so the sacred hymn book of the Israelites all the way down to the time of Jesus is the book of psalms right so if you go into a sanctuary and you hear the psalms being chanted and sung, where are you? You're in the temple, You're in the temple. Which makes me think, when I was a little boy, I remember they would say, the responsorial psalm is, and I remember thinking, it's pronounced song, right? All right, say it right. (laughs) I didn't know there was a difference between a psalm and a song, right? But the error was on my part then. But I've figured it out since then, okay. All right, so if you hear psalms, if you see an altar, if you see vestments, if you see candles, if you see a golden table, if you see special bread and special wine, guess where you are? You're not just in the tabernacle, you're in heaven. Heaven on earth. That's what the sanctuary tells us. Right? And if you want to prove of this too, there's one last song, one song in particular, that's meant to tell you you're in heaven. And it's not from the book of Psalms, it's from the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah was special, Isaiah had a special event when he was caught up into the heavenly temple in a vision and this is what happened quote I saw Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple his vestments his vestments were so massive and glorious they just spilled out into the sanctuary There's an old term, the kapamangya, the big, like sometimes you'll see the bishops or cardinals in these massive vestments with the train behind them that make rival like some of the wedding dresses that you'll see women wear. uh, That's God's vestments. His vestments are just glorious and splendid. right? His train filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim. Another name for the angels means the burning ones. They're so close to God. Their very essence as angels is fire. They're the burning ones. Each of them had six wings and one called to another and said, this should sound familiar. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the house is filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he did what anyone would want him to do. He put it in his mouth. Right? I mean, imagine, it's got to be terrifying enough to have an angel made of fire flying toward you. But if he's holding an open, a burning coal and says, open up, <laughs> wow, okay. So he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt. Taken away and your sin forgiven. So remember, in order to enter into God's presence, we have to be purified of sin. We have to be cleansed. We're not worthy to. So the fire of the coal cleanses Isaiah and cleanses his lips and makes him able to enter into God's presence, right? So when he enters into that heavenly temple, the song he hears is one. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Savaoth, Lord, Holy, 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 Lord, God of hosts. Right? By the way, and that word hosts is a word for the angelic armies. So it means particularly the God of the angels. That's who Isaiah is praising. The whole earth is full of his glory. And by the way, notice when it says the house is filled with smoke, it's not because it's on fire, it's, that's the smoke of the incense going up in the temple. All right, so when we come to Mass, we see an altar, we see candles, we see priests, we see vestments, we see um, a golden table, we, see, um, we hear the psalms sung, and we sing the song, Holy, 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 every single Mass. Why? What is the church telling us? It's telling us that when we come to Mass, we're entering into a sacred sphere, and we are entering into heaven on earth and joining our voices with the eternal song of the angels in the heavenly temple. In fact, if you, uh, I didn't put this in the handout, but if you fast forward to the book of Revelation and you look at Revelation chapter 4, John, St. John the Apostle, is going to be caught up into the heavenly temple as well on the island of Patmos. Now Isaiah's in the 8th century AD, I'm sorry, BC, excuse me, 800 years before Christ, John's in the first century A.D., and when John goes up into heaven in Revelation 4, guess what song the seraphim are still singing? Holy, holy, holy. So for 800 years, they're singing that one song, right? It's like going to a Leonard Skinner concert, right? (laughs) Free bird, right? They just want to hear. Not everybody of every age is going to get that, but that's true, right? Leonard Skinner's been singing the same song for 50 years because that's all anyone wants to hear, right? That's how it is with the seraphim. They just keep singing this eternal hymn of praise because that's what they do in the Heavenly Temple. Now, that's the tabernacle of Moses. That's the temple of Jerusalem. But we know that temple gets destroyed and it gets replaced by a new temple. What is the new temple? We all know from the Gospel of John, when Jesus goes into the temple and he turns over the table of the money changers, what does he say? And I quote, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he spoke to them of the temple of his body. What does that mean? Temple of his body. Well, remember, what made the tabernacle special, what made the temple special, is that it was the dwelling place of God on earth. That's why it's heaven on earth, because God is there. And if the temple was the dwelling place of God on earth, what is the incarnate word? What is the body of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man? It is the living temple. It is the new temple. It is the true temple. So wherever Jesus' body is, guess what? There is the temple. All right, first point. That's the new temple. Now turn the page. It's not only Protestants, though, who ask questions about the mass. It's also Catholics. We have questions, too. What is up with all these long readings? Enough with the readings. Come on, man. Especially Palm Sunday. Read the whole Passion narrative. I remember when my kids were little, and I'd sit there, you know, I had to hold them. My knees are starting to buckle <laughs> as we're reading through all of the Passion narrative of Christ. Or if you go to an Easter vigil and you've got like a really zealous young priest who does like all seven readings with all of the Psalms, and you're just thinking, what are we doing here? What is up with all the readings? And what's up with all the standing and sitting and standing and sitting? Why do we stand up and sit down over and over again? Other questions you might have is, why does a priest sit in that big chair, special chair? Who does he think he is, right? <laughs> his fancy chair, right? his fancy clothes. Um, and then why do, we, why do we have to have a homily? You know, some homilies are good, some not so good, right? Why can't we just get to the Eucharist? I mean, that's what we're here for, right? For the consecration, the blessed sacrament, right? Why not just go straight there? Well, the answer is that the Mass is not just the fulfillment of the worship in the temple. It's also the fulfillment of the worship in the synagogue. And although in our minds the Jewish temple and Jewish synagogue might be two ways of talking about the same thing, that's not true. The synagogue was its own unique institution, right? So I want to look at some of the passages from Scripture about the synagogue and show you how the synagogue is fulfilled in the Mass as well. And the Mass isn't just a new temple worship, it's also a new synagogue. So let's go back to the top of page three here. The synagogue has its origins in the post-exilic period. So uh, that's uh, the 6th century B.C. You might recall the Israelites weren't doing so well, fallen into idolatry over and over and over again. And finally, not only are the northern tribes defeated by the Gentiles, but the southern tribes are defeated. Jerusalem's decimated. The temple is destroyed, and they go into exile. So 40 years later, when they come back from exile, they don't have a temple to have sacrifice and worship and all that in. They have to rebuild it. So what happens is while they were in exile, the way they worshiped God was through the reading of his word. So they have a service focused on the word in the wake of the temple. And the first description we get is from Nehemiah chapter 8. A long quote here, but listen this was the liturgy of the word that was the foundation for the synagogue. It says this Ezra the priest brought the law, in Hebrew the Torah, before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate. No relationship to Nixon here. This is just the gate that they would bring the water out of. From early morning until midday. You think the mass readings are long? This is from early morning to midday. So stop complaining. we got nothing on these. Now the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden pulpit which they had made for the purpose. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. And when he opened it, what did the people do? They stood up. They stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. Wow we got standing, kneeling, prostrating, amens, responses between the priests and the people. Any of this sound familiar? Yeah. This is the liturgy of the synagogue. And then also the Levites, it says, help the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, note that, lectors, clearly, all you readers out there, I want to make sure we read it clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Nehemiah 8, 2 to 8. Now, this is really important. If you went to the tabernacle, Moses, there's no readings. There's no homily. There's not even any people in the tabernacle. The people are outside. The priests are doing the sacrifice in the sanctuary. But in the beginnings of the synagogue, there's a liturgy of the word at which all the people are participating. Not just the men, but the women and even the... The children, at least those who can hear with understanding, right? So it's focused on the reading of the word, the instruction of the people, the attention of the people, and they don't just read it, they also explain it. And what is basically the beginnings of a homily. And notice here, too, that when they would read the first five books of the Old Testament, which was the Pentateuch of Moses, the most sacred part of the Old Testament, what did all the people do? They stood at attention to honor the book. What do we do as Catholics, right? When we get to the Gospels, the fourfold law of the new covenant, we we stand up. We stand up. I used to tease my Protestant friends when I was younger because they love St. Paul, right? Sometimes we Catholics get a little nervous about St. Paul. But I've got a book on St. Paul. Don't worry. He's Catholic, too. Um, (laughs) Trust me. But I used to tease my Protestant friends and say, you know, we Catholics, we sit for Paul, We stand for Jesus, right? We we stand for the gospel. Because it's true, we sit down for Paul, but when the gospels come, we stand. Because there's something special about the gospels, the fourfold gospel. And we get that from Judaism. They did that as well for the Pentateuch. right? So we see a book, we see readings, we see homily, we see people explaining the readings. That's one aspect that tells us, guess what? When we go to Mass, we're not just in the temple, we're in the synagogue. Another aspect of the synagogue was that it had chairs. It had seats. There were no seats in the temple. But there were seats in the synagogue. And there were a couple of special ones in particular. The one that was most special was the seat of Moses. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 23 when he's speaking about the Pharisees and says, quote, Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on the chair, in Greek, the cathedra of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They're hypocrites, right? They, Jesus says, love to have the best what's in the synagogues? The seats, right? So that's another aspect of synagogue that's different than the temple. No seats in the temple, but there are seats in the synagogue, right? And even in Jesus' day, there were certain seats that were special, Right? And the Pharisees and scribes, one of the best seats in the synagogue. Thankfully, Catholics never have any conflict over pews anymore, right? You don't have your special pew that you better not sit in, right? Okay, I know, I know how y'all are. Every now and then I'll visit a parish and I sat in a seat and people are looking at me with evil look, I'm like, oh, okay, that must be their pew. <laughs> I've been sitting there for 43 years, whatever, you know. So, but no, this was a sign of their elite status. But there was one chair in particular that was important. It was the seat of Moses, Because that was the seat from which the preacher would preach. So the Jews did this. They would actually preach sitting down, not standing. They would preach sitting down because it was a symbol of authority. If you sat in the seat of Moses you would preach with the authority of Moses. If you sat in the seat of Moses, you'd explain the word of Moses in the Pentateuch, right? And Jesus tells his disciples, if the Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses, you listen to what they say. This is actually a fascinating point. Jesus is telling his disciples to follow the preaching of the Pharisees, but just don't do what they do because they're hypocrites. So they preached with authority because they spoke from the cathedra. Anybody... What do we Catholics, I think it was Vatican I, said something about the infallibility of the Pope whenever he defines the doctrine of faith and morals and speaks ex cathedra. What does that mean? It means he speaks from the seat, not of Moses, but the seat of St. Peter. So he speaks with Peter's authority, and therefore we do it. We believe it. We submit Okay, so there's your example of the seats, and the chair and the synagogue. So you go into a, a Catholic church, when you see pews, it means you're not just in the temple, you're in the synagogue. Right? What about the readings, though, too? Have you ever wondered about how we choose the cycle of readings? I remember when I was a kid, I saw misslettes. I don't even think I knew that the missalette was a selection of readings from the Bible. I, I remember thinking, what? they talk about the missile, the missilette. I thought they were talking about like weapons of warfare. I'm like, what, what does this have to do with missiles? I don't understand. Right. But it's a cycle of readings from the scriptures. And after the Second Vatican Council, we went from a one year cycle of readings to a three year cycle of readings, like your A, your B and your C, Mark, Matthew and Luke. Where do we get that idea of a three year cycle of readings from? Well, guess what? We got it from the Jews like everything else, all right? So in ancient Israel at the time of Jesus, the rabbinic tradition tells us that although Jews in Babylon had a one-year cycle of reading through the Pentateuch, the Jews in Palestine had a three-year cycle of reading through the books of Moses. So just as the Jews read through the books of Moses in three years, guess what we Catholics do? We read through the Gospels in three years, a lectionary cycle. If you want more on that, I actually did a series called the Mass Readings Explain. It's a video series. Every week we release a video where I explain the readings for that Sunday Mass. Um, And it only took me seven years to finish the series because there are two tracks for Sunday readings. Um, And uh, so it's like 300 videos. They're each about 30 to 45 minutes each and uh, just unpacking the readings. So it might be something you're interested in if you're a nerd like me. Anyway, okay. Now, if you want to prepare for Sunday readings, it's helpful. Okay, so we've got readings, chairs, seats, synagogues, homilies, scriptures. Uh, and you see all this come to fruition in the New Testament, in the Gospels, with Jesus' first homily. Remember the story of Jesus in Nazareth? Look at it again in his first homily in Nazareth with Jewish eyes. It says this, quote, He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. Jesus went to synagogue every week on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. So notice, it wasn't just the reading from the Pentateuch. They also had a reading from the prophets, right? It was called the Torah and the Haftorah, so two sets of readings. So they gave him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Isaiah 61. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down because he's going to preach. He sits. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled. Literally in Greek, in your ears. That's what yeah, it says the scripture has been fulfilled as it in their very ear. And it says they were amazed at the gracious words that came forth from his mouth. Now, they weren't amazed for too long because by the end of the homily, they wanted to throw him off a cliff, right? Which is... A really bad first homily, right? Father, I don't know if either of you had an experience of wanting to be thrown off a cliff, but I tell the guys at seminary, if they don't throw you off the cliff, your first homily is better than Jesus' first homily, okay? (laughs) At least it ends better, right? But of course, he goes away from them, and they don't do it. But notice what happens here. You have a reading, you have a homily, and Jesus is connecting the old covenant with the fulfillment that he brings, He, just like he's fulfilling the temple, guess what? He's fulfilling the synagogue in himself. Because he is the word made flesh and come into our very midst. So if you go into a church and you have pews and a nice special chair and readings and a homily, guess where you are? You're in the synagogue. You're in the synagogue. And just like with the temple which is only on earth, I'm not only on earth, but also in heaven, so too the synagogue. John, in the book of Revelation, actually has a vision of what we might call a kind of heavenly liturgy of the word. Look at this again in Revelation chapter 5, John's vision of heaven. He says, quote, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, there's your big chair, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, Right, so this is the scroll, just like they had in the synagogue, that they would read. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So even in heaven, they can't find anyone to read the readings. They can't find any lectors, right? Anybody going to do the reading here? We have somebody, reader please, right? Even in heaven. So John starts to weep. And one of the elders said to him, don't weep, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. So John turns to see the lion, the root of David. The root of David is the symbol for the Messiah. The lion's a symbol for the royal tribe. Um, so this, he's looking for the Messiah. But instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So who's going to open the word of God to us? It's Christ, the lamb, the word made flesh. Okay. Turn the page. That's your second point. So you can see that in the Mass, everything's coming together. It's not just the temple, it's also the synagogue. It's not just the liturgy of the Eucharist, it's also the liturgy of the Word. All of these things are converging to fulfill the worship of the Old Covenant in the New Covenant of Jesus Christ. Now the third and final image I want to look at really revolves around the second half of the Mass, what we call the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And this could be one of the most puzzling aspects of the Mass if you didn't grow up with it or if you aren't familiar with it. Um, So there's a lot of emphasis in the second half of the Mass on, for example, the presentation of the bread and the wine. You might have questions like, why does the priest wash his hands? I mean, couldn't he have done that before Mass, right? Uh, It's a little odd, right? Um, If you've been in a solemn Mass, one of the things that's most puzzling for people is the use of incense, right? Why does the priest walk around the altar with a thurible, incensing the altar? I mean, isn't this a fire code hazard, right? I mean, are we putting ourselves in danger here? And what about the smoke? What is the reason for the use of incense, right? And there are all kinds of other things, like why does he mix water with wine? These different rituals in the liturgy of the Eucharist. And another one that's important is, and you might not have noticed this, but in the actual missal, the rubrics of the mass, it talks about certain moments where there's silence, like, especially after Holy Communion, like we just had. That silent period after Communion. Sometimes the priest will purify the vessels, but we're silent. What, what What's going on in the second half of the Liturgy of the Eucharist? The answer to that question, I would suggest to you, is that the Mass is not just the fulfillment of the Temple. It's not just the fulfillment of the synagogue. It's not just a meal. It's also a new sacrifice. It's the new sacrifice of the new covenant. And this is one of the biggest... Uh, differences between Catholic worship and the worship of Christians who come from Protestant traditions that go back to the Reformation in the 16th century. So for example, when Martin Luther was breaking away from the Catholic Church, the one thing he was the most virulent about was the idea that the mass was a sacrifice. He fought against that vigorously In fact, he once said that if it rained down fire from heaven, it would not be punishment enough for the blasphemy of calling the mass a sacrifice. Tell me how you really feel, Marty. I'm okay? like, whoa. He's, very, well, he's a very passionate guy. Um, he actually curses a lot in his theology, which is always like a red flag for me. Like If, if your favorite theologian uses cuss words throughout the whole thing, that might be a problem. You know. Uh, anyway, but he was certainly passionate. He, he had strong feelings about it. Now, the reason he said that was because he thought that if the Mass was a sacrifice, then we were re-crucifying Jesus. And that we were saying that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't enough. And we had to repeat it, right? Now that's wrong. We're going to see in a second. That's a misunderstanding. But if he were right, his passion would make sense. But of course, he's wrong because the Mass is a representation of the one sacrifice of Christ. And what we do in this liturgy of the word makes this manifest. So let's look at some of the elements of the Mass that pointed up as a sacrifice, as the new sacrifice, the new covenant. First, the presence of bread and wine, the offertory in particular. When we bring forth the gifts of bread and wine and the priest offers them to God, he's doing something that resembles the first. First man called a priest in the Bible, and that's the offering of Melchizedek. Here's what it says, quote, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. This is from Genesis 14. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So he gave him a tithe with the sacrifice. So note that, fathers, the collection is biblical, right? Maybe I'll do a book, The Jewish Roots of the Collection, right? Or something like that, right? You got it? Money as the sacrifice, goes with the bread and wine. It's something that's very important. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. But for our purposes here, notice that the sacrifice is centered on the offering of bread and wine. Now, how do they say it? Blessed be God, right? Blessed be God for all that he's given us. The fruit of the earth work of human hands, the bread and the wine. Because bread and wine aren't pure offerings from nature. We don't offer God grapes and we don't offer him wheat. We offer grapes that have been crushed and wheat that has been ground, that's been transformed through the work of our hands into an offering back to him. Right? But before we do so, the priest does something interesting. He washes his hands. Right? Right? Why does he do that? Well, go back to the Jewish roots. In the Old Testament, it says, if a priest is going to offer a sacrifice, he first has to wash. This is from the book of Exodus chapter 30. It says, you shall make a laver of bronze for washing. That was the second thing in the temple. When the priests go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, they shall wash with water lest they die. So God's really serious about the priest washing with water. So fathers, don't admit the lavabo, right? The washing, right? Uh, um, this is dangerous indeed. They shall wash their hands and their feet. In the Old Testament, they did both, lest they die. Well, why? Because the washing was a symbol of purification. Because God is holy. In order to enter into his presence, it's fitting that we purify ourselves um, before we come into the sanctuary, especially if the priest purifies himself before he offers sacrifice. All right, so we got the bread and wine, we've got the washing of hands. What about the incense? Well, this is something so crucial, many Catholics don't, aren't aware of. Whenever you see incense, you know that sacrifice is being offered. The incense is a sign that the Mass is a sacrifice because it's a sacrifice of prayer to the Lord. So the incense is like a visible symbol of our prayer ascending into heaven, into the Lord. And just like the smoke going up to God kind of disappears, so too our prayers enter into the heavenly realm. You can see this from the book of Psalms, which says, quote, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening what? Sacrifice. So the incense is a kind of visible image of sacrifice. And we humans, because we're bodily, we need visible, concrete signs and symbols to help us remember what we're doing when we come to worship God. A third, a fourth element that points to sacrifice is the imagery of blood, especially blood on an altar, right? So there's so much I could say about this. But if you get my book, Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, you'll get a little more detail. But... Um, for a moment, go back to the Passover. If you were entering into the temple to offer sacrifice at the time of Jesus, like say on the night of the Last Supper, in the evening, when Peter and James, um, yeah, when they go into, no, Peter and John. Wait, who is it? It's John, sorry. They go into the temple in order to uh, prepare the Passover. They go into the city. When it says they prepared the Passover, that would have involved them bringing a lamb into the temple and having it sacrificed. Now, everyone in Jerusalem is required to offer sacrifice only in the city. So Passover would be a kind of like an ancient Jewish world youth day. It would be filled to the brim with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims coming to make their sacrificial offering. So in order for that to take place, they had to have basically an assembly line uh, formation of bringing lambs up to this low wall And Peter or John would slit the throat of the lamb. And on the other side of the wall, there would be priests, 30 priests with golden bowls and silver bowls. And they would catch the blood of the lamb, hand it to another priest who would hand it to another priest. And then the ones surrounding the bronze altar would pour out the blood at the base of the altar. Actually, while the Levites are all chanting the Psalms alongside them, almost like in choir, two strings of Levites chanting Psalm 113 through 118 over and over and over again as the blood is poured out. And then Peter or John would take the lamb back to their house and they would roast it and eat it in the Passover meal. Now, you can imagine Josephus, the first century Jewish priest, tells us that there were about 250,000 lambs sacrificed on Passover day. So that is a lot of blood. So where would it all go? Well, according to the rabbis, they they said, if you look here, at the southwestern corner of the altar, there were two holes, like narrow nostrils, by which the blood that was poured over the western base and southern base used to run down and mingle into the water channel and flow out into the brook Kidron. The Kidron Spring flowed out of the eastern side of the Temple Mount. So if you were a Jew, like Jesus or Mary or Joseph, going up to the temple on Passover and you're coming from the east, what do you see as the lambs are being sacrificed? You're going to see a stream of blood and water flowing out of the side of the temple. Right? All right, Now you get it. Go to John 19 when Jesus is crucified. Why does John, in particular... Tell us that they pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He's emphatic. He says, "He who see has saw it. He who saw it, birth, testimony is. We know his testimony is true, but because." And he tells you that he might believe, right? That you might believe. Why is he so emphatic, saying, "I was there. I saw it. I'm telling you, so you can believe the blood and the water really flowed from his side." Because this. Mystery of the blood and water flowing from Jesus' side, Jesus, John would have known as a Jew, reveals that his body is the new temple. And just like the blood and water flowed from the altar of the Jerusalem temple, so now the blood and water flows from the side of Jesus Christ, crucified. Because he is the new temple. And his body is the new sacrifice. And not just his body, but his heart. Because if Jesus' body is a new temple, and the blood and water flowed from the altar, then what does that mean? Where's the new altar in the new temple? It's the sacred heart of Christ. That's the new altar. Please remember this, because it shows us that it's not just how much Jesus suffered that atoned for our sins, it's how much He loved. Because the altar of his sacred heart is filled with the fire of divine charity, of divine love. And as St. Peter tells us, love covers a multitude of sins. So if our measly human love has the power to cover a multitude of sins, what can the divine love of the word cover? An infinite ocean of sins. And that's a good thing because that's what we produce, right? We need his infinite love to cover the sins of humanity, to atone for our sins. That's why sacrifice is so important. Sacrifice is ultimately ordered toward love. And Jesus reveals his love through the new sacrifice of the cross. Now, one final aspect of, the, of sacrifice that's important, well, almost one final, I'm kidding, is silence. The Jews tell us that when the priests in the temple would sacrifice, there would be sacred song, but there would also be time of silence. So, um, in the letter of Aristeus, this quote tells us that in the temple, a general silence would often reign, so that one might think there wasn't a single priest in the place, although the number of ministers in attendance was more than 700 in addition to a large number of assistants bringing forward animals. And everything was carried out with reverence and in a manner befitting supreme divinity. You can think here, too, of the silence of Calvary. Jesus is on the cross for three hours, and he says only seven words, seven phrases. Most of the cross takes place in silence and in darkness. So silence and sacrifice also go together. It's an important point. So when we enter the church, it's important that during the Mass there also be some times of sacred silence to help us remember that there's blood being poured out on the altar and that we're not just in heaven, we're also at Calvary. We're at the cross at every Mass. And if you have any doubts about that, just look at the words of consecration. As we all know, um, St. Paul tells us about the Last Supper, but look at the context in which he does so. I'll put two quotes here on the Passover. Paul writes, Christ, our Paschal Lamb, Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore keep the feast. And then he goes on to say, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in what? My blood. That means it's a sacrifice. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Now, when the priest says those words of Christ, and when Jesus says remembrance, re- remember, <laughs> that's bad fun, but remember this. In Judaism, the idea of an act of remembrance, a memorial sacrifice, it wasn't just, hey, remember what God did way back then. That's through the memorial, that original sacrifice is made Present. It's represented. So, although the Passover might have happened a thousand years before, a Jew offering the memorial sacrifice could say, God saved me when He saved our people of Israel. He did that for me. So, it not only remembers it, it also makes it present. And sure enough, this sacrifice we see, one more quote from Revelation isn't just on earth. It's also in heaven. And this is a fascinating passage about the sacrifice of the lamb in heaven. John has a vision and look what it says. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. It's hard to be quiet for half a minute. Sometimes they have silence for half an hour. And then another angel came and what did they do? They stood at the altar with a golden censer. He was given much incense to mingle with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense rose with the prayers of the saints from the hand of the angel before God. So what does the incense signify? It signifies the prayer. What does the silence signify? It's a time where all of the saints, which by the way, this is the saints on earth, In the book of Revelation, when it says saints, it doesn't mean the souls of the blessed in heaven. It means the holy ones, Christians on earth. Their prayers rise up like incense to God into the silence of heaven. All right. Turn the page. Almost done. So what does this show us? When we come to mass, we're not just coming to a church service, right? right. We're entering the worship of the new temple, the worship of the new synagogue, and the offering of the new and perfect sacrifice of the new covenant. And what I've done on this last page, I'm not going to read all these, but you can maybe take some of them home uh, and just look at them, is try to collect some different quotes from saints and writers throughout the centuries to show you that all this stuff I'm talking about with the Jewish roots, this is just a Catholic tradition, (laughs) The saints and doctors of the church, they've said all this before me. I'm really just stealing it from them, okay? Uh, every good Catholic theologian is really just a thief, right? We steal from the church, and then we just pass it on, okay? So just one, I just want to highlight just a couple. So if you look in terms of the new temple, all the way back in the 5th century, Pope St. Celestine, he added the Psalms, the Responsorial Psalms, to the Mass to show that we're in the temple, right? Uh, in the 13th century, it took about a thousand years, but eventually the custom of the tabernacle developed of uh, placing the blessed sacrament in this golden box on the altar or at, the, at the apse behind the altar. And uh, William Durandus, he was a writer in the 13th century, said that the reason he did this is because that's what they did in the Temple of Solomon. The tabernacle is like the ark of the covenant. Just like the ark of the covenant had the holy manna in it, so too the tabernacle has a golden ciborium with holy bread from heaven. And then, with regard to the new synagogue in the fifth century, it was Pope Saint Anastasius who said, "You know what? When we read the Gospels, everybody needs to stand." Right. So we've been doing that for over fifteen hundred years. It's a, this is an ancient tradition of honoring the Gospels. St. Isidore Seville in the seventh century said that we're gonna read the readings, why? I'm gonna, I'll quote this one. Tradition teaches that to proclaim the reading is an ancient, Jewish insti- ancient institution of the Jews, right? So when we do this, we're re- replicating, reflecting the worship that Jesus and Mary and Joseph themselves would have offered in the synagogue, right? And then finally, I, want, I do wanna quote this one. With regard to the new sacrifice, Uh, St. John of Damascus has this beautiful reflection on the Eucharist, on Holy Communion, where he compares receiving the Eucharist to the burning coal that Isaiah received. Listen to this, quote. He says, this is 8th century, y'all, way before Martin Luther and the Reformation. The bread and wine are not a figure of the body and blood of Christ, God forbid, but the actual deified body of the Lord. Because the Lord himself said, this is my body. So note the real presence right here, 8th century. Therefore, let us honor it with all purity of body and soul, for it is twofold. Let us approach it with burning desire, with our hands folded in the form of a cross. Let us receive the body of the crucified with eyes, lips, and faces turned toward it. Let us receive the divine burning coal. So that the fire of the coal may be added to the desire within us to consume our sins and enlighten our hearts. And so that by this communion of the divine fire, we may be set afire and deified. Isaiah saw a live coal, and this coal was not plain wood, but wood joined with fire. Thus also the bread of communion is not plain bread, but bread joined with the Godhead. Wow. (laughs) The kids do this. One time, I was teaching college. They started doing it. I'm like, are you okay? I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. It's like, you just blew my mind, Dr. Petrie. Okay. Yeah. Well, St. John Damascus just blew my mind. Think, so the Eucharist, what is it? it the, the appearance of bread, under that appearance of bread, it's, it's not bread. It's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. The fire of Jesus' divinity. So with what reverence should we approach Holy Eucharist when we bow and say, amen, I believe, so be it. And then one last quote. From Pope Francis, in his recent letter on the liturgy, he talked about the importance of silence. We live in a world of noise and distraction. It's so important that we take some time at Mass to be silent. And the Holy Father writes, Among the ritual acts that belong to the assembly, silence occupies a place of absolute importance. Many times it's expressly prescribed in the rubrics. In fact, it's present when... After communion, he noted that. And I noticed we had that period of prayer. Thank you, Father. So beautiful to have that time to just thank the Lord, talk to Jesus in your heart, in silence. Silence moves us to sorrow for sin, desire for conversion. It disposes us to adore the body and blood of Christ. Love. It suggests to each one in the intimacy of communion what the Spirit would affect in our lives to conform us to the bread broken. For all these reasons, we are called to enact with extreme care the symbolic gesture of silence. Silent prayer is a time to show the Lord, to tell Him in our hearts we love Him, and to listen to His voice. So let's thank Him in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, thank You so much for the gift of the Mass. For the gift of the liturgy, the liturgy of the word, and the liturgy of the Eucharist. Thank you for coming to us in the most blessed sacrament. And all the signs and symbols and words and actions that help us to realize that when we're at mass, we're not on earth anymore, but that we're with you in heaven. And you come down into our midst. Because wherever you are, there is heaven. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end amen in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen oh, thank, you. thank you thanks everybody yes, thank you.
0: well thank you doctor uh praise god what a beautiful uh reflection uh, for us we'll have a lot to unpack yeah i packed ponder. a lot in i'm sorry <laughs> a lot to uh ponder in the days to come uh Uh, You're free to leave if you need to go, but uh, I think uh, uh, Dr. Petrie would be willing to stay for a moment for any questions. Uh, If you do have any questions, I will come to you with a mic, and then you can uh, ask your question, and everyone can hear what you're asking. Are there any questions for the doctor? Okay, let's go over here. But feel free to leave if you need to leave. Uh, yeah, sure. Because of babysitters or whatever.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Father. Thank you very much. Really oh, appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks. Uh, with Jesus, some things change and some things stay the same. Yep. How
0: do you uh, explain? Is there a rationale as to why we've kept some things today, as, as well as why they kept some things in the first century? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, moved on. Some things stay the same. Thank you. Great. Uh, that's a good question. So. Whenever you're looking at the Old and New Testaments, it's important to remember that there's both continuity and discontinuity, right? There's both foreshadowings and fulfillments. And whenever Christ fulfills things, sometimes things stay the same, but other things are left behind. And you really have to answer that question honestly on a case-by-case basis. So for example... There were certain laws in the book of Leviticus that were actually meant to separate Israel from the Gentiles and the pagans around them. The most obvious example of this are the the food laws, right? So in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, you couldn't eat shellfish, you couldn't eat pork, and those laws for food were designed to separate Israel from the Gentiles because they kept falling into idolatry every time they commiserated with the Gentiles. So God tried to set them apart to make them a holy people when they were too weak to really follow the law. But once the Holy Spirit comes and the new covenant is open and now God's going to send the Israelites and the 12 apostles to the Gentiles, those laws that were meant to separate them actually what? Pass away. They've served their purpose. And now it goes back to a previous covenant under which anything was permitted to be eaten. So for example, if you go back to the book of, Noah, to the book of Genesis and chapter 9 on the account of Noah, God says, you can eat anything. You just can't drink the blood, Right? So Noah, this is important, Noah could go to a good Cajun crawfish boil, and he would have been just fine, okay? It's only after the exodus and the Israelites are enslaved that they have to be separated. So each, some laws are going to pass away, like the food laws. Other laws, like you shall not commit adultery, that one's permanent, okay? In other words, because certain things are going to be intrinsic evils, like adultery or murder or theft, Others are going to be contingent laws that have a particular purpose. Just like in a household, sometimes we'll have rules when the kids are little that aren't appropriate when they're grown, right? So like an 8 o'clock bedtime for your 22-year-old is probably going to be a problem. Like, my oldest daughter is 22. She's living with us, right? So I don't. she doesn't have an 8 o'clock bedtime, but she did when she was a little kid, right? So that's how the laws work as well. There's a rationale kind of pedagogy. Does that help a little bit? Okay, when it comes to liturgy too, what I would say is Everything is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, and certain signs and symbols are going to be preserved because they help us to see beyond the visible rites to the invisible mysteries of what what we're doing in the Mass. All right? Cool. And while you're doing that, Father, one main thing... The reason we don't sacrifice animals anymore is because we've had the perfect sacrifice of Christ. So all that passes away because there is no need for the blood of animals because we have the blood of Christ, who's the perfect sacrifice.
2: Yeah, yeah, so when was the first Mass, and then how many, like, iterations of the Mass have there been over time, and is the Mass (laughs) something continually, like, evolving, and we should... Expect the Mass to take different forms in the in the future. So if you can speak to Yeah, this that. is a
1: great question. This is one of the things I'll be dealing with in the book. So uh, when was the first Mass? Well, it depends on what you mean by the Mass. This is a good good professor answer. So obviously the foundation of the Mass is the Last Supper, right? That's when Christ institutes the Eucharist. But that first Last Supper is different because Christ has not yet died on the cross. So there's a sense in which the Mass begins at the Last Supper, but then it extends to include all of his passion, his suffering, his anguish, and then his death, his hour. Right, All of that is caught up into the liturgy of the Last Supper. But then it goes beyond that to his death his descent, his resurrection as well. So we call that the paschal mystery, his suffering, death, resurrection and ascension. That whole paschal mystery is then going to be made present at every mass after the resurrection. So you could argue that the first mass in the sense of a post-resurrection mass is on the road to Emmaus. When Jesus is walking with the disciples, he opens the scriptures and then he when he breaks the bread it says he took the bread, blessed the bread, broke the bread, and gave the bread. Those four verbs are the exact same four verbs that Luke used earlier to describe the Last Supper. So it shows now that what Christ is doing in that first experience with the, with the disciples is acting at the, as the celebrant of the first Mass after the resurrection. So that would be the one I would point to if you wanted to use the Mass in the more technical sense. But that has its foundation, of course, in the Last Supper. Does that help? Okay, good. I feel like I'm on a game show. This is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take math for
2: $500. I think my question is an easy one. But first, I just want to thank you for representing to this generation uh, the roots and the foundation of our faith and the Jewish tradition. So oh, thank you're you welcome. Thanks. i love to listen to all your stuff. Um, oh, thanks. Go ahead, you I'm talk listening. about something called the bread of presence, and yeah. I can't help but connect it with something that we hear about, especially right now at the Eucharistic Revival, about the true presence mm-hmm. of the body, blood, soul, and divinity in the bread. Is there any relation between the bread of the presence, or what does that mean? Sure. And how does, what does it mean in relationship to the presence of Christ in, in, the bod, in the bread?
1: Yes, this is a great question. I actually dealt with this in my... Um In the book on the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, I go into a little more depth than I did tonight on that. But I would say this one thing. First, uh, in the Old Testament, the phrase bread of the presence is from a Hebrew expression, lechem ha-panim. Lechem means bread, right? Like Bethlehem, Jesus' hometown is the house of bread. Panim means presence or uh, literally face. So in the Old Testament, the bread of the presence was the bread of the face, the rabbi said it's the bread of the face of God. So it reveals his presence, a kind of symbol of his face. Because whenever you're standing face to face someone, you're in their what? You're in their presence. But that, that's still just a shadow. In the new covenant, that symbol of the divine presence is going to become a reality in the Eucharist. Because it's not just a sign of God's spiritual presence. This is important in the Eucharist, Christ is not just spiritually present with us. He's spiritually present everywhere as God. His divinity is omnipresent, but his humanity is not. His humanity is circumscribed. So if you want to be with Christ in his the presence of his humanity, you have to be in the presence of his body. And that is only present at the right hand of the Father in heaven and on every altar and in every tabernacle in the world. So, this is really important. Sometimes when people say, well, I can be with God, Cajuns will say this down, Father, I don't need to go to Mass. I can be with God in the bayou. I can be with God in the boat. I can be with God in the deer stand, right? Like, uh, you know, and, he, and, and that's theologically true, the, the second half, but the first part's not right because you can be with God in spirit in the woods, but you can't be with him in the body. And God became a human. And if we learn anything from COVID, it's that we need to be with one another face to face and not just virtually. Amen? like we need that presence the real presence of the people we love and so if you love someone you want to spend time with them not just in spirit but in the in the body right exactly does that make sense okay I'm sorry I'm looking down but I remembered I didn't answer the second half of his question about the changes in the mass and things like that so let me just say real quick one point, back to your question, wherever you are. There you are, sir. So, the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1205, might make a note of this. It says that in the liturgy, there is an immutable part, a part that's divinely instituted in which the church is the guardian, which cannot be changed. And then there are parts that can be changed, which the church has the power and on the occasion also the duty to adapt. to change okay so what that means is there are certain aspects of this liturgy and sacraments which are immutable like you can't consecrate a donut and some and some beer and call it the eucharist right well no i i'm I'm actually it's funny but saint thomas aquinas in the summa theologica in the 13th century he actually says some of the germans who had converted recently were using beer to baptize babies (laughs) they were baptizing them in beer which is like a very german thing to do no um like why not you know um, and, and, and the pope had to say, no, 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 you can't do that. It has to be what? It has to be water, right? That's an immutable aspect, divinely instituted. But there are other aspects that can change, like some of the words, signs and ceremonies and rites. So it's the church who ultimately has the authority in the development of the liturgy to make those kinds of changes. So that's just a quick little note on that, all right? Yes, sir, who is the OK.
2: Um, Thank you again for your presentation.
1: Um, oh, you're welcome.
2: Um, I have lots of questions. Oh, I'm sure you do, <laughs> but I'm not going to. I'm not going to keep you that long. Um, in, in the three synoptic gospels, yeah. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mm-hmm. um, there there there's the transfiguration, mm-hmm. and Peter. Each writer has Peter saying a different reference to for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, Matthew says Lord, Mark says Rabbi, and Luke says Master. Mm-hmm. And then he adds at the end of the compared to the other ones, that the other ones don't, he was confused. Mm-hmm. I'd like your comment on that with regards to presence. Sure. Wait, with regard to what? Presence. Because there, Jesus and Moses and Elijah are present yeah. to them. Mm-hmm. And yet, each writer writes them differently, as Lord, Rabbi, and and Master, but Master is confused for Peter.
1: Yeah, Okay. So this is a bigger question uh, that's a little unrelated to the topic tonight, but I'll try to address it in as brief a point as possible. So what you're getting at is the differences in detail between the gospel accounts, right? So the Church has a section on this in Dei Verbum from the Second Vatican Council, which talks about the historical The historical reliability of the four Gospels, recognizing, though, at the same time that they have what we refer to as a substantial historicity, but they're not identical verbatim accounts. Okay, so you'll see this. The best example is the Last Supper itself. If you look at the accounts of the words of institution in Matthew, they're a little different than the accounts of the words of institution in Mark, and they're a little different than the accounts of word of institution in uh, St. Paul and in Luke, for example. But what Pope Benedict actually said in his book on Jesus of Nazareth, where he treats this, is that although there are differences in detail, this is the main point, the gospel accounts, the substance is the same, right? Just like you or I might talk about what happened tonight, you might give one account to your wife and then another account to a friend. Are you going to use verbatim words? No, because it's not like a stenographic report in a courtroom. But are you going to give a substantially accurate account? Yeah, if you're intending to tell the truth. So what Jesus, would, in this case, like the example of the transfiguration, what you have there is a difference in detail, but not in substance. Because in each one of those things, Jesus, Peter, is honoring the Lord with either a title of master or Lord or rabbi. Although I would have to check the Greek for master, because sometimes they'll translate, some translators will translate rabbi as master. Right? But maybe we could talk a little bit more about, about that after. Does that help? I have a, a whole section on this in the, my book on the Last Supper. Uh, where I kind of look at the differences between the accounts and try to discuss the question of the substantial historicity of the Gospels. Does that help? It doesn't help. I'll oh, say that's not what you were asking.
0: Okay. I, I,
2: I've heard that argument. Our-
1: I do think that that's true, but there can be difference without a substantial contradiction. So we would want to... Yeah, yeah oh sure 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 yeah each gospel author is going to highlight different things because they want to bring out a particular aspect just like when i tell a story about what happened in an episode i might emphasize one thing to one person and emphasize something different to another but still give the truth that's the church's teaching on that particular point so i'd need to look into a little bit more about what you're asking about what truths they're trying to look at or emphasize in that
0: particular point all right so I think oh, we'll, okay. we'll have that be the last oh, okay. official was- question, just because we're getting to 8 o'clock. Oh, but, I'm sorry. Yeah. But maybe doctor will stay after uh-huh. for any further questions if people want to approach him. I'll let him be the master of his own time from here on out. Okay. It is 8 o'clock, so I think we need to kind of bring it to at least a formal closing. And again, if uh, Dr. Petrie would like to stay and field other questions. Sure. Uh, please, uh, I'll, I'll I'll leave it up to you, Doctor, how long you want to stay here tonight. Okay. Uh, but thank you for coming. Uh, thank you, Doctor, again, for your presentation. Pleasure, yeah. uh, we cannot live on cookies alone. I know some of you are hoping to go home and maybe have something a little more substantial. Uh, but thank you for coming, and God bless you. Thank you, Father. Amen. It. Amen. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.